from the Milton Metz Studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host WFIU WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. Much of Indiana's water infrastructure for the delivery of clean water dates back to just after World War II. As a result, communities around the state face a looming problem with repairing and replacing old pipes and facilities, and it's going to cost a lot of money. 2016 report from the Indiana Finance Authority indicates that the state's water infrastructure needs uh, immediate repairs to the tune of about $2.3 billion. This week on Noon Edition, we're going to discuss Indiana's aging water infrastructure and Hoosiers' access to clean water with four guests. Joining us by phone today is State Senator Susan Glick, who co-chairs the state's Water Infrastructure Task Force. Uh, Also in the studio, we have Connie Stevens, who's executive director for the Alliance of Indiana Rural Water, Sherry Mitchell-Brooker, who's a hydrologist and founder of Friends of Lake Monroe, and Jack Whitman, vice president and principal geoscientist with Interra. If you have questions or comments, please give us a call at 1-877-285-9348. That's outside of the Bloomington area. If you're here in town, you can call 812-855-0811, or you can call, uh, well, I gave you the toll-free number, and you can send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And if you want to just follow us on Twitter, you can do that, too, at Noon Edition. So thank you all for being here. And, Senator Glick, I'd like to start the program with you. So you're the co-chair of the state's Water Infrastructure Task Force. Just give us an overview. Why do we need such a task force? Well, there's there's concerns, and uh, we, we have tried to um, uh, keep Indiana up to date on the issues of water. We've been in a process that began uh, almost eight or ten years ago now, and over time, a number of individuals have been involved in that, including Senator Ed Charbonneau from in the northwest Indiana area, as well as the Indiana Chamber of Commerce many other organizations. Dr. Whitman certainly has been involved, as have many of the municipalities and the counties and and cities, towns around the state, because we have been fortunate in Indiana for many, many um, uh, eons, I guess you would say. We've had had water in most parts of the state of Indiana. Um, Certainly the northern part of Indiana has had access, much of the economic development of Indiana has been driven by the locations of the rivers and the the Great Lakes and and other sources of water. Some areas of the of the state have not had as much, but they've had adequate uh, rainfall and and groundwater uh, access that they've been able to develop. We think it's a very basic part of the future of Indiana to maintain that water supply, to improve the water supply, and improve the delivery system. So it's all part and parcel of that. We don't want to find ourselves like some of the communities around the the nation who have either had polluted uh, situations with their water supply, or they just didn't pay attention until the other they either ran out or the infrastructure deteriorated to the point where it was no longer usable. Connie Stevens is with us. She's the executive director of the Alliance of Indiana Rural Water. So, Connie, can you give us your perspective on the issue? And you're also on the, the task force, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we represent a lot of rural communities out there, and the rural utilities that are in Indiana are about uh, well over 80% are rural. So all of these small utilities out there, we provide training and technical assistance to, and because we have this relationship with them, we're concerned about where they're getting their water from as well. Mm-hmm. They monitor, they know how much they're drawing. If we want growth in those communities, they need to know how much more they can handle there. Some are able to handle more. uh, Some are not. But the important thing is they want to be able to grow at least somewhat. But uh, they also need to be able to track what's going on with their water source. Mm -hmm. So, And that's an ongoing process. And small communities meet a lot of challenges. They have to meet all the same compliance and regulations as the big cities. 
but with much less, much fewer resources. Mm-hmm. Sherry Mitchell Brooker, uh, you are a founder of the Friends of Lake Monroe, as well as being a hydrologist. Lake Monroe is Bloomington's water supply, and I know there are other places that sort of have their eye on Lake Monroe from time to time for being a water supply. So, you know, from your perspective and from the Lake Monroe perspective, what's the future and what are your concerns? Um, Well, I think my primary concern is water quality. Um, There is an abundant supply of of water in Lake Monroe for our community. And um, we do experience issues with um, blue-green algae as well as um, uh, high nutrient and sediment loading into the lake. And um, this causes problems in the water treatment process and um, it's a source of disinfectant byproducts that can be toxic. And so um, we want to take a proactive approach. We want people to understand that um, this is a very important resource. It's irreplaceable and that um, we need to take better care. Mm-hmm. And Jack Whitman, you've got, you, you're looking at it from a lot of different angles, I'm sure, as a, as a, sci- a geoscientist. Um, what, what are your major concerns? Is, is there, you know, how, how long are we going to have plenty of water as you know as, as sherry says lake monroe's got plenty of water right now how well, long are we going to have that well i think that the fact is that in most of the state we have plenty of water regionally but the question is that locally there are problems in the way that we're growing and in it, it's both an infrastructure and and a resource problem so there are parts of the state where you can add new wells to an aquifer and the total amount of water that you can withdraw from that well field might not change. You are really just stealing from each other's wells. So the fact is there are places where um, the resource and the aquifers are, are limited by growth. And this is new somewhat to the state. This is a new topic. It's not as though it's been there for 50 years and we haven't done anything. This is a new problem. Um, and in fact, it's a different problem in the eastern United States. I deal with a lot of other states around the country and in the east. This is something that states are just getting their arms around and it's a new topic. So the state of Indiana is taking steps down this path both to try to protect the infrastructure that delivers the water, but also, as Sherry pointed out, the the source is really the ultimate thing that needs to be protected for the for the people. There was this recent report from the U.S. Geological Survey that said we're actually using less water now than we were, well, the least amount, I think, maybe since, what, the 60s? Since the 1960s. Can you explain that? Well, sure. And that's not very hard to um, figure out in a way that in, in my house we have dual flush toilets. So it's a simple thing in that we we are more efficient in the way that we use consumed water in our homes. But the fact is that when we talk about water supply and water use, most of us think about how much I use for myself or in my home each month. That might be what they know because they're, they have to pay for it. Um, what isn't accounted for is that the food that you eat every day takes about 1,100 gallons per day to produce. No one talks about that. No one even knows that. And so as much as I might have a less than 100 gallon per day use in my home, and we think that's my water use, but we're using many times that for the food that we consume and the clothes that we wear. So there's a lot of use that's not in going through the utility pipes and metered, it's going onto into industry or to plants and being used that way. And those are new uses. So we've we've started to irrigate the state of Indiana in a way that never is kind of new, which is good. It adds more production, but that that use has to be kind of accounted for and considered when we think mm-hmm. about the whole system. Yeah, is that what you were you were getting to, Connie, when you were saying your rural communities? Yes. To think about how much they can grow. That's not necessarily people, but more industries they might want to lure there. Exactly. Um, Industry would love – we have a lot of uh, industry that's 
interested in coming to Indiana, and they like to go to rural areas as long as there's good um, transfer access. Uh, for instance, your our major um, highways and interstates, if there's a good area through that, and we have a lot of that in rural communities. But they they need to have the infrastructure there, and the current infrastructure is so old that it needs rebuilt or redone or upgraded at this time. Not only that, to expand in order to accommodate the new industry or possibilities for new industry to come in. So they're at a catch-22. Not only are they needing to draw for their community, but the surrounding communities need to draw, as Jack mentioned. How many people are drawing from this particular source, water source? So it's the industrial use that's really using a lot more water than just you and me? Is that well, is, no? Industry industry is also um, falling as a user in the state of Indiana just because the nature of industry has changed here in the past 20 years. So we, we used to have more foundries and manufacturing facilities that were heavy industry, and there's less of that being uh, used right now. But irrigation is increasing, um, and almost all other uses are increasing. So we're growing, too. There are more people, and people are spreading to more places. So those are the drivers for um, for the rural communities as well as the metropolitan areas. I, I'd like to... Um, throw in something about this idea about growth and water. And I think we have to be careful about how we think about um, uh, the trade-offs between growing our community and the water resources that we have. And um, we, as we move uh, into uh, expanding populations, not just locally, but globally, nationally, that um, we have to think about um, people who are coming into this area because there is water and leaving other areas. And um, I think that it is dangerous to think that we can just move to the next water source, make that water source, you know, uh, depleted or dirty, and then move on to the next area. So when when we make decisions uh, and we do planning, we need to take into consideration what the long-term effects are and think about how we can modify behaviors to accommodate all of the uses that are out there. Our phone numbers, if you want to join our conversation about water in the state of Indiana, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington area. News at indianapublicmedia.org if you want to send us a question. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Cinder Glick, we've uh, the the panelists here in the studio have really sort of gone through a range of issues around this. What uh, what do you hope that the task force accomplishes? What are what are the range of issues that you're looking at? Well, we're looking at a lot of different issues. We're talking water quality and quantity. We have to look at the infrastructure. Uh, over the past few years, we have been addressing some of the transportation infrastructure, the, the roads, the streets. Those um, issues are being addressed, and it's an ongoing thing because it continually wears out or has to be expanded um, depending on, on the, uh, the demands on the system. But we have largely ignored some of these uh, water infrastructure problems. Through the um, mid-60s and 70s, we had tremendous growth with rural water because of uh, infrastructure money that was sent through by the Farm Home Administration and and other uh, grants and opportunities through the federal government. Many communities uh, installed water, sanitary and water systems, uh, new water systems throughout the Midwest, and certainly Indiana benefited from that. And we've had tremendous growth. but. But we're pushing the limits, if you will, of some of that usable life. Um, many of those systems have, uh, were using the state-of-the-art equipment or systems that were, were there at the time, and now we find we've got better, more efficient means of, of treating, uh, say, the sanitary sewers and, and the, the water itself to make it reusable. We, we have to address those issues, and, and we want to do it in a systematic fashion because nobody's got a pot of gold to reach in and, and to invade to use that money. We have to figure out, number one, how we're going to finance it, 
what's the best uh, research available, what are the best systems available, and are they within reach for, say, the small rural area or the small rural uh, community? Can they be addressed, or will there be a better system, say, for a medium-sized city or a larger city? And the end result is, is the water coming in and being treated? Is it going to be reusable throughout? Because water, as someone pointed out earlier, water is a, is a commodity that can be used up or it can be destroyed by the, by the use. Uh, if we pollute it to the point it can't be reused, we've taken something out of the system that, that uh, we're going to need, if not in the immediate future, certainly in the, in the distant future. But it has to be replenished or, or treated. We have to address those issues. We want to do it in a systematic fashion so that we're not in a situation like Flint, Michigan, where the emergency created an interest. We should have the interest first and then address the issues in a systematic, more logical fashion. When we're talking about billions of dollars needed for infrastructure repairs, where would that money come from? Well, first of all, I don't think the task force is going to put dollar amounts and say, here's what needs to be done in terms of dollars and cents. What they want to do is establish priorities. What needs to be addressed? What needs are immediate? What are our highest priorities? What do we have to address uh, maybe in the, uh, in the immediate future, meaning two to five years? And how serious is the need? Here are the wants. Here are the, here are the desires long term. How do we get people to think about water as a limited uh, resource and not in terms of we turn the tap and it's always there, but in terms of we want it to be there today, tomorrow, next year, the next century, and, and ad infinitum. So we, we aren't expecting to come up with a three-point $2 billion give from any one source, what we're looking at is what are the needs, prioritizing the needs, articulating what has to be done and in what order and in an orderly fashion, then addressing those needs and formulating a plan for payment. Uh, we can't fix every road every year, but we can do a systematic maintenance and up, uh, updating of the system in such a fashion that we can afford it over time, and we have to establish what those timelines are so that we're not in a panic mode at one point and, and not addressing the ongoing maintenance and needs. We what, have to address, we have to kind of, uh, if you will, prioritize those issues. What's your timeline, Senator? Are you uh, hoping for some kind of action in the next legislative session? Well, we have to have our report from the task force, I believe, by December the 1st. So we will be reporting back to, to the legislature and also to the governor, to the administration, telling them, you know, what our findings are and, what, you know, articulate what they are. And then I think there probably will be a request in the budget, since this next uh, session is a budget year, there'll be some requests for funding to begin the process, to begin taking action on the very highest priorities. But what those dollar amounts are, we have to be realistic about how it fits into the, the um, amount of money available. And again, setting the highest priorities first, those the highest need, highest priorities. We're going to go to the phones now. We have a phone call from Julie, and Julie has a question about long-term management of Lake Monroe. Julie, go ahead. Okay. Um, my understanding is that Lake Monroe originally had a lifespan of 50 to 100 years, um, and I think we're about halfway through with that. So my question is, wh what is the long-term management plan for that? Well, actually, I'm glad to have the opportunity to sort of dispel that myth because that 50-year figure is actually um, comes from an economic valuation. So when they built the reservoir and they thought about how much money they were going to spend on the reservoir, they took a 50-year time frame and looked at um, what would the um, benefits be versus the cost. So that's where that 50 years comes from. It's not an actual physical limitation. And um, I don't think that we have a um, good understanding of how long the lake will last. That's one of the reasons we need to get in there and do a lot more work. We need to get some bathymetry measurements. We need to um, do uh, 
monitoring of um, sediment loads and shoreline erosion. Um, I think the, la the life of the lake depends on how we treat it and how we take care of it. Was that addressed at all in the Lake Monroe Master Plan that was came out last year, the year before? Um, the Lake Monroe, not, not in terms of a lifespan. I don't believe that they looked at that, but I, I could be wrong. I don't remember everything about it. Um, they talked a lot about the management of recreation and the shoreline and those types of things. There was a a bit about water quality. We actually made some complaints about that and got a little more concerns in there. But um, the management of the lake is very um, complex because um, we have multiple agencies. We have this Corps of Engineer who um, operates the, the water levels, you know, changes the water levels and uh, controls the shoreline. Then DNR is managing recreation and leasing recreational areas along the shoreline and and doing some uh, leasing of farmland and so forth. And then we have Hoosier National Forest that owns a significant amount of the shoreline. And, um, and then uh, other state uh, entities, state forest within the watershed. S uh, so uh, sometimes I think what happens is there's kind of like everyone's pointing in another direction about who's going to do what and how it's going to get done. And that's part of what our organization is about, is trying to bring those people together to have a comprehensive plan. All right. Jack, go ahead. Um, one of the things that Sherry points out really well is that the problems that we face now need information and data to try to solve them. To, to create a priority list, you need to know where to act first. And in order to know where to act first, you have to measure something from somewhere. So what Sherry just described is the data that is being um, gathered or needs to be gathered to make this judgment about the lake and how to manage the lake. But that same idea applies to the whole state, to all the aquifers in the state. We are one of the, we have some of the fewest monitoring wells for water levels in the entire uh, country per capita. So we have something like 30 monitoring wells, and that just isn't enough to track change over time. And so we need to really focus our attention and our resources on collecting that information that will give us the, what we need to develop the priorities that Senator Glick's talking about as well. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. We're talking about wa water supply and water quality in Indiana and the infrastructure that brings water to the tap in your home and elsewhere. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And we're talking about water today on Noon Edition with four guests, State Senator Susan Glick, who is – oh, she maybe is not with us anymore. We're going to see if we can get her back. Um, Connie Stevens, Executive Director of the Alliance of Indiana Rural Water. Sherry Mitchell-Brucker, who's a hydrologist and founder of Friends of Lake Monroe. And Jack Whitman, Vice President and Principal Ge Geoscientist with Interra. Uh, State Senator Susan Glick is the co-chair of the state's Water Infrastructure Task Force. We think she was only going to be here for the first half of the show. We were trying to convince her to stick with us for the second half. But I think she might have had another uh, obligation. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 
1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. News at indianapublicmedia.org is where you can send us questions and Twitter. Uh, we're at Noon Edition. Uh, Jack Whitman, I wanted to ask you a, a question just about the national scene because I, I've under the impression that if we were in California or Arizona, someplace in the West, this conversation would be a lot different than it is here in Indiana. Um, Two days ago, the South Florida Water Management District just passed its budget for $890 million. That's South Florida Water Management District. So I think that we, other parts of the country, for various reasons, have to take this issue more seriously than others, and obviously Florida, it's critical for all, for all things, for emergency response, for property damage. There's a lot of reasons for that investment. Um, Texas spends over a billion on this, and, and the eastern states are now beginning to do the same thing. So I think that, that what's the challenge in front of us, just like the infrastructure challenge, is sort of like, how do we organize this? Sherry pointed out another thing about the the fact that the the agencies of the state have never had to talk to each other, let alone the neighbors, you know, the neighboring users. That's one thing. But the agencies don't really have a great way of communicating. Um, Over the past several years, five years or so, the Indiana Finance Authority has helped pull a lot of these things together. So we – the way I – Charles Fishman wrote a book called The Big Thirst, and one of the things that he wrote in a column recently was that water is broken, data can fix it. And that's kind of true, that data is one of the pieces of the puzzle that we have to have our hands around, and we have to understand how these systems work, like the watershed for Lake Monroe, like the lake itself. Then we can start answering questions and prioritizing the and we need to forecast growth too. It's it's very good point about we can't just keep growing everywhere and just keep handing the problem to the next area or moving or maybe getting water from a distant place and bringing it across to a new place. We really have to think about how much is here to work with. What do we care about the ecosystems and the lakes and all the other things that need water as well? Mm-hmm. And um, that's a misconception that a lot of utilities have out there. They thought that because they report every water, wastewater utility has a report they have to provide to someone. But not all of them are going to the same place. And they're assuming that whoever, all of them assume that whoever they send their report to, they have all of this data and information when they don't. So there's a lot of confusion going on out there about that. So we need to do something about that. We need to make sure that all of this data is pulled together in one place so that we can utilize it. Mm -hmm. I want to welcome back State Senator Susan Susan Glick. Thanks for joining us again. Sure. Mm -hmm. So in in rural areas in particular, so I'm assuming things are probably worse, are they, in terms of infrastructure? In some. We have a, a lot of small rural utilities out there that have been doing a good job and done very well. But after 75 years, you still need, there's still a lot that needs to be done. But yes, and there are still a lot of communities, small rural communities. For instance, I live in a small community of population of 288. We're on a regional sewer district, but we all have our own wells. We really need to be on a water system ourselves. But um, that's not that's not happening yet. but So there's still a lot of need out there. And I know in the southern part down here, they're still hauling water in places. And there's the water utilities down in here want to provide water service to them, but it's not affordable because it's so far out there. And they have to go through a lot of rock to get to it. So um, there's a lot of pictures out there of people gathering, hauling water in the back of their minivan for the family. I want to ask uh, Sherry Mitchell-Brooker about Lake Monroe because there have been a couple of attempts in the last mm, decade or so, a couple of discussions of, of different entities that wanted to come down to Lake Monroe, get water, and take it back someplace 
else. And so from, you know, if you could just sort of update us on what's happening with that. And then also with State Senator Susan Glick, you might know also, uh, as well, are there restrictions, you know, what laws are in place that would say that can happen or that can't happen? Uh, one of the things that um, I have been told by the Corps of Engineers is if such an action were seriously proposed, that there would have to go through um, NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act process. And so um, one would have to look into all of the ramifications associated with uh, so, such a transfer. Um, just from what I've looked at, um, I think that there is uh, a potentially a problem just in terms of quantity because you might look at the lake and say, oh, there's lots of water there. But when you start drawing down the water that shallow, especially in the summertime when we have a tendency to have algal blooms and so forth, I think you're going to see a lot of water quality problems that would come along with that. Um, again, I am a strong advocate of looking at, I'm not a fan of um, uh, interbasin transfers. I think that's where we've gotten into a lot of problems, thinking that water is infinite, just go somewhere else and grab it, that we need to look more closely at conservation, um, changes in behaviors, um, uh, you know, uh, thinking about uh, water resilience and um, the linkages between all sorts of different behaviors, what you eat. Um, you know, just uh, comparing the, the water footprint of, say, a hamburger to a soy burger, um, there's 14 times more water required to produce a, a hamburger than a soy burger. Um, those types of, of um, uh, awareness of, of how we, we use our water is important, and I think uh, we need to think very seriously before we start thinking about long-distance transfers of water. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Jack. Well, one of, Sue Glick, let me yeah, okay. just yeah, sure. here that yeah. that um, the state passed a, a bill last year went into effect. Uh, I guess it was passed in the session two years ago went into effect last year that addresses some of the inner um, governmental um, disputes that arise with water. You know, water doesn't respect geographical boundaries such as county lines, state lines, uh, municipal boundaries. It flows underneath the ground, especially the aquifer situation or the rivers and some of the lakes. They they occupy space in many areas and in many different uh, communities. And so in order to address some of those issues, we have created a commission that, with appointments uh, from members of the General Assembly, uh, from the pro tem and the Speaker of the House to also the governor, naming individuals to this commission to allow them to interact with officials from other states or from various communities to address some of these issues. Uh, right now there's an aquifer in northern Indiana, um, and I will mispronounce it, but it's a combination of Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio, that aquifer flows under three states. There's a suggestion or a proposal that uh, a group in Pioneer, Ohio, will drink, will drop six huge wells and sell water from that aquifer to some suburbs around the city of Toledo. Well, that would be fine, but that's going to, we need to know how much it's going to affect the communities in Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio, because if you take water out of one location, the water in the aquifer is going to flow towards that area where the water is being removed to attempt to replenish that. uh, I think uh, Dr. Whitman calls it a cone of depression, because water flows to that lower point, which will... Um, flow away from the the other communities. We need to have some interaction in place, some means of communicating with the other states and the other communities who will be involved and affected so that we can address those issues before someone begins that process or operates that business. Uh, it's one thing if you're throwing water, say, in an, from an irrigation pivot onto a farm field it goes back into the aquifer, and then it's there to be used again by whoever is in that particular geographical location. 
But if, in fact, the water is being transferred out or piped out of that aquifer and is never coming back, then we need to know what, you know, what the potential is and the danger of the loss and where, you know, how are we going to replenish it? Um, is it something that's going to have a long-term effect on that, that area and those communities? I just wanted to say that uh, at kind of following uh, Senator Glick's comments, and that she's right on the money on this, is that we mostly don't have a problem of water availability, but we, are, we have a serious problem of water management because we don't have the information we need. So water availability is part of the problem some cases, but water management is a serious problem. And that's why the, the task force, in my opinion, is such a, an important step because it's a conversation that's taking place that is at the right scale this whole the whole state is thinking about this and and what will eventually have to occur is that at least this is a, the case in other states that have dealt with this problem the state is um, identifies regions within the state that then collect they talk about their resources in their area kind of with Lake Monroe is a a kind of most local or a local example of that, but you can zoom out and maybe think of whole watersheds or larger systems, um, aquifer systems, so that you can start asking and then answering those questions about how much that aquifer can produce. When you're talking about you know, needing more information, that's the kind of thing you're talking about, like how much water is in a particular aquifer and in a particular watershed? Right. Okay. How many wells can you put in there okay. without it actually going down long term so that you're actually depleting it so much that you that it won't come back? And we don't have that information. No, no we do not have that information. It seems and, like one of those things that we don't get – we don't – we don't worry about it until there's a big crisis. Exactly. Like California, for example, and um, I watched a documentary recently about uh, New England and th- the panic there because of bottled water and water being trucked. Well, and out of there. and perfluorinated. The, the, all of the the compounds that are the that are related to Teflon and those and those things. That is a serious problem that the Eastern United States is dealing with. Uh, New Jersey has a serious problem. All those states that deal with and have their own population explosions of sorts or growth, they are now dealing with a water quality problem that is is another struggle. So it isn't just about is there enough liquid. Mm-hmm. It's really about what is in that liquid. So can we can we treat it? Can we drink it? Mm-hmm. Et cetera. Our phone numbers concerns me a great deal, Mm -hmm. and I'll just interject here, is the fact that that, uh, there was a period of time, probably in the 60s and 70s, when there was an activist nature to uh, young people who wanted to be involved in in, um, some of the activities to conserve and, and protect the environment, and there seems to be less of an enthusiasm, or at least not as, as, um, Uh, strident, I guess, as they have been in the past, but we are finding with a lot of uh, small water utilities especially or sanitary sewer systems, that sort of thing, that it's become more and more difficult to find qualified individuals to operate water systems, to become certified so they can keep these, keep and manage these water systems to address the issue of water quality both at, you know, the local community level, but also in the, the larger regions or the districts um, across the board. And, and I think that for the young people, I think they're especially, you know, the universities, um, some of the high schools and, and those areas should be addressing, um, there's a lot of interest on the part of young people to take care of the environment. But if we could, we could make... Uh, an effort maybe to attract these individuals into the fields of hydrology or water treatment or uh, sewer management. It may not be glorious and uh, as some of the other issues are, but the education and training that it takes to to make these people qualified and to encourage their the uh, expanse of these water treatment and this evaluation, these surveys, it will be a very meaningful career for them if they, if in fact we can we can uh, stimulate that interest and get them involved. Mm-hmm. I, as a 
person that started my career as a water treatment plant operator, I just wanted to say it was, in fact, glorious. <laughs> it was fun. It was really – so I started – really, it was – I was up a canyon outside of Salt Lake City, and you had to measure the – precipitation every hour. You had to watch the stream flows and change over time. It was kind of how I became a hydrologist before I studied any hydrology. I had to understand the system. So I think that that's another deep problem inside of this uh, topic. We haven't talked a lot about pollution. We've just sort of skimmed over it. Um, I was hoping, Sherry, you could talk a little bit about when you when you talk about algal blooms and what are we doing that is contributing to these things? Well, well, it's a combination of things. Um, mainly what we're talking about is nutrient loading into the watershed, not just the lake, but all of the land that drains into the lake. And so the um, nutrients that are most of concern are nitrogen and phosphorus. And those come from runoff, urban runoff, farm runoff, runoff from uh, steep forested slopes, um, uh, fertilizer, uh, um, uh, sept- faulty septics, um, uh, cattle in the streams, uh, all those types of things contribute. And then also in, in lake uses, in trash, trash and how people are dealing with their lake waste and um, recreational activities. So all of that contributes, uh, and um, it's as if we're overfeeding the um, ecosystem uh, with these nutrients. And when that happens, and then we get warm weather and sunlight, we get these algal blooms. And the algae that is of most concern is blue-green algae because that uh, has, uh, produces toxins, and those toxins uh, can affect uh, your uh, liver, kidneys, neurological, and have cancer implications. Uh, so uh, that's one of the big concerns. And then that algae, uh, again, contributes to problems with the drinking water treatment process. And again, when it interacts with the um, chlorine used in uh, treating the drinking water, uh, you get disinfectant byproducts, and those disinfectant byproducts um, can, in high concentrations over long periods of time, cause uh, health problems. And those were issues that Bloomington was facing just in the last year or so. Yes, right? yes, and and they have made some changes in their treatment mm-hmm. process to address that in the short term. But you know, if we allow the nutrients to continue to build up and the al- algal blooms to continue, then um, you know, we're looking at uh, potentially problems down the road. So because it's gone down a little bit, we can't become complacent about it. We have about 10 minutes to go in the program, so I want to give our numbers in case somebody wants to join us and ask a question. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area, news at indianapublicmedia.org. If you want to send in a question or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, I, I believe it was uh, Senator Glick that brought up Flint, Michigan, and I just didn't want the program to go by without asking about you know the problems that that Flint faced with you know lead and the drinking water, the serious issues that that they had. I mean, how likely is it that we could have a pocket of something like that in Indiana, and how how would we know? Well, there's uh, yeah, always Senator. the potential because of the age of the systems. We have uh, many municipalities. You know, the larger municipalities installed their water system, some at the turn of the last century. They used um, pipes. Uh, maybe they were lead. They were state-of-the-art at the time. But uh, now we know that if they leach, we could have contamination, we could have health risk, and so on. We've also, you know, over time uh, discovered that things like galvanized pipes will corrode, and, and there's ramifications of that. We're seeing recent studies that are saying... You can't just change to a PVC-type pipe without making, which are, you know, there's uh, uh, progress towards that, but the PVC also has problems in terms of um, addressing immediate use after installation because of the chemical treatment in the manufacturing process. So those things have to be evaluated as we go along, and, you know, we will not know in many cases until the 
the situation arises. That's why the training, the certification of some of these um, individuals in the process, in these uh, um, uh, water systems and the controls that are in place, we're trying to get ahead of those potential problems. Um, I think one of the things that is going on is the Indiana Geological and Water Survey is doing testing of lead in the schools, in the drinking water of the schools. So I think that that is a really good project that could uh, um, serve throughout the state as a warning if there are problems. I just wanted to say that I think that this, what Senator Glick was talking about, um, the the fact that these are installed all over the the state, there are lead service lines that go usually from the water main out at the road into the house. There's, that's where the lead, is, lead line is. Um, that's one of the priority factors, I think, in terms of figuring out how to, where this infrastructure money needs to go. It has to be somehow directed to protect people from the consequences of that lead. And, and I just wanted to clarify one thing. The lead service lines in Flint became uh, important because the water quality of the water going through the lead line was changed. And that because it became more aggressive and and was able to carry more metals with it, it stripped the lead out and carried it through to the drinking water throughout. So I think we have to be careful about what we're thinking. So most of the time, if you have a lead service line, it's usually coated with a kind of a biological uh, layer that usually doesn't help or it helps the concentrations. But changing water quality can also make dramatic changes in uh, the, the lead, the importance of lead. Okay, thanks. We have a question on the phone. Alex is on the phone. Please go ahead. Yeah, I just have a my my general question is um, this is a great conversation. What can an what can an individual do that is not part of a state organization or a local organization um, besides basic conservation um, at you know at your home? What kind of what kind of what kind of actions can an individual take to get more involved in this issue? Senator, do you want to uh, go first on that, and we'll we'll take uh, suggestions from all of our <laughs> panelists. Well, I think uh, beginning with even young children understand things like don't waste, you know, um, wash your hands, but don't leave the water running, you know, brush your teeth, but don't, you know, don't do these things that are terribly wasteful. Uh, It begins in the home. It begins with mom, dad, the kids, um, whoever's there. And um, I think the schools have a large, uh, they can do it and do it very subtly in terms of education and and teaching conservation is is just a protection of the environment in which we all live and then continue that through as part of the general you know population i know a lot of the community or the municipalities include uh, recommendations if you will of public service type information that they attach to the water bill or or send out with their you know the utility bills giving ideas or suggestions to the water users on what they can do, how they can address it, what they can look for, and how they can respond if they determine there is a problem or they detect a problem within their own service. Okay. Absolutely. I agree with that, Senator Glick. Also, um, contacting your local water utility and finding out what can I do to help in my community with uh, conservation as well as educate the community until we get um, customers around that community involved and educated to understand where their water is coming from and the quality of that water um, they're kind of taking that for granted so anyone out there who wants to get involved I strongly encourage that and share that information sure um yeah, I'm not sure if you're in the Bloomington area, but it's certainly if you are joining Friends of Lake Monroe would be a great thing. The, um, <laughs> uh, or if you're not in the Bloomington area, another watershed group or river keepers, um, those organizations do a lot to inform the public. 
the other thing that I would say is don't underestimate what you do as an individual because your power as a consumer and your influence on others around you is, is extremely powerful. So if you are conserving at home, people are going to see that. If you are, um, you know, using organic methods in, in farming, in your garden or, or whatever, people are going to see that and, and they're going to be influenced by that. So um, uh, conservation, uh, as it starts with an individual and then works its way out. Jack? I just wanted to say that the perspective, too, in the state has to be one that where we recognize that one quarter of all of the people in the state get their water from a well, as was mentioned earlier. So there are many people who aren't relying on a utility. They are relying on the well in their backyard. So it's a, it's a different problem. It makes it even more important, in my opinion. Uh, the, the, the quality of these, uh, the water in these aquifers is really critical to those people who don't have a utility to test it every every month or whatever. So it, 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 it's a critical point of reference that, that many people don't have the utility angle to, to work. Quick, very quickly, um, what can an individual who's on a well do to ensure that their drinking water is safe? They can usually work with the Department of State Department of Health has a whole program that is designed to d- look at the water quality and to evaluate whether or not there's bacteria. So, All right. We're out of time. And I would urge, oh, go ahead. Go urge ahead, anyone to use their Purdue uh, Extension Service as well. Uh, they do do testing at the county level, so that helps. Okay. Thank you very much. And now we are out of time. I want to thank State, <laughs> Senator, State Senator Susan Glick. Also, Jack Whitman, Sherry Mitchell-Brooker, and Connie Stevens for being here with us today. Uh, For producer Patrick McGurr, engineer Mike Pashkash, and co-host Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.